From ThatShelf.com, this is Black Hole Films. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. What's a black hole film, you ask? Well, you know those films you always meant to get around to watching, but you never did for whatever reason? Well, that's what they are. And this podcast is all about embracing them and checking those films off our lists and talking about them and whatever else happens to come up. I'm Canadian filmmaker Jeremy Lalonde, and I will be your host. You can follow me on Twitter at LalondeJeremy, or check out my website, JeremyLalonde.com, for more information on me and my projects. If you like the show, please subscribe to it, rate, review it, and leave a comment on whatever platform it is you're listening. It really does make a difference in helping to get more ears tuning in. And if you like this show, check out the others on the ThatShelf.com family of podcasts. And without further delay, let's get into this week's film. This is episode 166, and the guest I have on today I'm really excited about. One of the things that recording these podcasts during COVID has made me realize is that I can reach out to people who aren't just in Toronto. Usually I like to record this thing live at my my home screening room, but I've been able to reach out to friends that don't live anywhere near me, and this is an example of one. This is Rob Haggins. He is an American filmmaker. And what's really special about him is go on YouTube and search for Be Speckled Mofo or look on Instagram and Twitter and those places too. What's really cool about Rob is he is like an indie indie filmmaker. And on his YouTube channel, he has this great uh, series called How to Make a Movie for $1,000. And he did it. He put his money where his mouth was. He has this film on there called Around the World that he made for... Uh, that amount of money, and it's uh, it's up there that you can watch for free. He has a, a series called Mofo Mondays, where he has new videos all the time. Uh, actually, sorry, the movie that he made, I shouldn't say, Around the World, isn't the, he, that's another indie film he made, but the one that he made as part of this, this series he did was called Barbara. Um, and so you can check that out. He made that all on an iPhone for a thousand bucks. So, yeah, check him out. And check out our conversation, because he sat down with me vicariously to watch a film. All right, so we are sitting down vicariously through the internet uh, with Rob Haggins, and we are watching, I almost said Goodwill Hunting, Dead no. Poets Society. No, I mean, I, I do love, I, I, I've, I've been like um, re-watching like clips of Robin Williams in Goodwill Hunting recently. Um just because he's so good in that movie. Like yeah. he's, he's fantastic in that movie. That scene with him on the bench with, with, uh, I won't say Ben Affleck, uh, with Matt Damon, like he just delivers that, that monologue just effortlessly. He, just he, lays it down, just destroys him. Yeah. I he, just, oh. He owns that. He owns that movie. And what's interesting, we we did rewatch that movie for the podcast. Someone hadn't seen it, and I will say that movie does not stand up for me the way it did when I first saw it. But really? his his performance is phenomenal. There are moments of it that are great, but you can see like that it's you know kind of uh it's just of, of that type. It's just a bit over the top. It was more melodramatic than I remembered. The NSA scene is really weird. Like that scene where they're, they're doing the thing and he's describing like what's going on or like one of his buddies or something like that is, is going to get blown up because of the decisions that he made, like that kind of stuff. And then the scene where he, like where Chucky goes in for that job interview is just like weird. There's like some sort of outliers. There. It feels like they're in like a different movie than the, than the movie that they're in. That's just it. There's a moment, there are a couple moments that are just like, Oh, this is the, and I know there's the, all the William Goldman stuff. Right. It goes around that movie, but uh, anyway, we're not talking about the movie. <laughs> it's okay. We go on tangents all the time on this. No, it's Ethan Hawke this time. It's Ethan Hawke. This time it is Ethan Hawke, so you know that. Yeah. What do you know about this movie? Uh, just the parodies that you've seen, like the, you know, everybody's done the stand on the desk, uh, seasons a day kind of stuff. You know, Community does a really great parody of it, season one. Um and I'm, a, I'm going through a community rewatch now during this pandemic. So it's sort of like one of those things. But um, just that, um, that's the thing. I really don't know anything of it other than what I've seen parodied um, over the years and stuff like that. It's one of those movies that occasionally somebody will like, you know, Carpe Diem sees the day, like that yeah. sort of thing. And they get like, you know, the somebody's always, 
going back to one of those things and stuff like that. And I think it's actually become so meta that people actually forget that it's coming from Dead Poet Society. Yeah, it's true. Uh, yeah, it's, it's one of my wife's favorites. She, I told her I was watching this tonight. She's like, I'm going to watch part of it anyway before I go to bed with you while you're <laughs> sitting down. So, uh, so she's excited to potentially join in on that part anyway. Yeah, so I I had never I'd never seen it, but I was like, this seems like when you asked me like uh, like what movie, I was like, oh, Dead Poets Society. That seems like something um, that would be really cool and stuff like that. It's just one of those movies that I don't know that I wouldn't you know, necessarily be like, let's watch Dead Poets Society. Like one of those things that's never gonna come up. So I feel like this was like the right time. Yeah, it feels like a Sunday afternoon movie, as I would yeah. call them. Uh, but it's interesting. Like for some reason, I didn't realize it, but I I just picked this up recently on Blu-ray. I think I saw it somewhere really cheap. Cause I knew it was one of my wife's favorite movies. So when you recommended it, I was like, Oh yeah, you haven't watched it since I grabbed it on disc. So I was I actually was... looking for it earlier on Blu-ray and now all I found was, uh, the, I think it's the five seasons of the, yeah. Could not find it at Walmart. Um, like I said, the only thing I found was the five seasons of what was the dead zone. I almost picked that up. <laughs> I'm a huge fan of that show. It's really weird. It's it's interesting to watch as a as a writer, and I'm sure you probably feel the same way because you can tell when one showrunner leaves and another showrunner picks it up because the the tone and the the sort of where are we going just radically shifts like immediately, and you can tell. Ooh, there's somebody else writing this show now. Like it's just one of those things. So yeah, well, um, yeah Walking Dead's yeah. very much like that. You you can tell like the the stages of Walking Dead. It's so it's not even like funny how drastic it shifts. Yeah, just like oh, we're completely going in this direction. Supernatural is another one where you're just like, whoa, we're just like, where are we going now? We're just one of yeah. those things. Yeah, I guess we don't care about that storyline that we've been yeah. setting up for two seasons anymore, huh? We're just moving the right the fuck along. Cool. Okay. <laughs> uh, I invested all that information in love for no reason. Got no you. No at all. It's fine. We're just never going to mention that again. <laughs> all right. Well, then I think that's a good place to to jump in and let's watch it. All right, man. So excited. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. All right. So we just finished. Yes, we did. And? Well, it's a mixed bag uh, for me. I mean, I think it's, I don't know, it's weird because it's hard to pinpoint like the, uh, like the time period in which it takes place. Yeah, it takes place in the 50s. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it feels, I don't know if that's a, like a, like a, like that says something about us that it still it still feels kind of prevalent that it like I don't know like that it doesn't feel like it could like it that it takes place in the fifties like seventy years ago yeah no um I have trouble relating to it just because like of the I think of the setting and the characters uh, most of the characters coming from sort of like a background of privilege and the preparatory setting and that sort of all of that uh, kind of a lifestyle is, uh, I think, foreign to me. Yeah, same. Uh, so, uh, and sometimes I think a lot of it is that it's been like parodied or been done so many times at this point that just it's hard to, it's one of the things where it's like the chicken or the egg, like which came first, you know, that sort of thing. Like you've seen stories like that, like the whole, uh, you know, must be free thinkers, let's do that and you know do, do not conform and that sort of thing um and uh the wacky teacher or not the wacky teacher but the you know the teacher that that inspires the youth like that kind of stuff so um yeah and i think what's in, i think a lot of those tropes and those cliches we now know come from this right uh, so it's interesting. So it's hard going back and watching this after the fact because it's like, oh, I've seen this before. You know, this yeah. is this is a shittier version of Dangerous Minds or, or whatever, right? Right. <laughs> yeah, like uh, you know, yeah, uh, Dead Poet Society, Dangerous Minds, and then they're like the mirror uh, image, but like exact opposite of each other. You know, Stand by Me, like uh, sure, yeah, yeah. Um, and that one is, you know, besides having Morgan Freeman, a very young Morgan Freeman in it, um, Stand By not, Me. Not Stand By Me. You're thinking Lean On Me. 
lean on me. Yes, lean on me. Sorry, yes. Um, lean on me, like uh, having a very young Morgan Freeman and stuff like that. And that one, I, I guess I relate to more just because it feels more like an American thing where like, or at least like a, like a black American thing where it's something where like, you know, that man was not only standing against like, you know, gangs and stuff like that, but he's also fighting against the people who want him to conform to this way of doing things while this this man's just trying to keep the school open. Like he's trying to get people to freaking graduate. Um, So that sort of feels uh, sort of more um, relatable. So I found myself like, suppose some of the other things in the story have not aged well. The scene where, um, uh, the party scene where he tries to kiss the girl. Yeah. Like post me too. Whoa. That is a, that is a big no, no. Like all of that is no. So like, yeah. And the movie doesn't, I mean, here's the thing, I guess you, uh, you know, if you, if you accept the movie takes place 70 years ago, right. you go, well, that was common back then. Uh, but is the movie aware of that? Like, it's a different if the movie is like doing a wink and a nod, and there's like another character they're going to do that's not okay. You know, where the movie is stuff cool, aware. Right? No, the movie's not aware. You know, it was made in what the early nineties, I think. Yeah, early ni- Yeah, early nineties. Yeah, yeah. Like 90- I want to say it's ninety two. Yeah, I want to say ninety two as well. Um, but yeah, like. And that's the thing. That's almost worse because the movie's not aware of it. Like it's cringy, like in certain like things like that, where it's just like, ooh, uh, they don't know. And eighty nine. Sorry, I just looked it up. Really? Yeah. Well, I don't know. Um, it's just one of those things where it's like there are certain moments in there that are kind of cringy in that. Um, the ending, I feel like the movie does sort of click into place for me, like right at towards the end of the third act where um, Neil has killed himself. Spoiler alert for anyone who, see, who hasn't seen the movie. But What? Uh, no, we can spoil away, yeah. But the best part was sitting down, my, my, my goddamn wife sits down beside me, and she's like, and she just, I was like, as soon as, and I remember, I remembered someone killed themselves. Mm-hmm. I knew that was like, the part of the ending of the movie but i I had only seen this movie i think once a very long time ago and uh and i was like who kills my for for a second i went in going oh ethan hawk kills himself i was convinced of that for some reason uh but of course my wife said she looks like oh neil poor kid i was like oh fuck you just god damn it you just ruined it i knew it was gonna come but now now i know it's neil she's like you're gonna figure it out He's a sad boy. And of course, he's a teacher, so she just has yeah. empathy for days. I mean, um, I was, it was sort of a, it's, it, I really, it, like, not to say it's weird to say, but I really enjoyed his death in that um, the last thing that he says to his father, one of the last, he's like, he's like, I have to tell you how I feel. And then his father like goads him, goads him. Is like, like, how is it that you feel? And then he sits down like a coward, and he says nothing. And I was like, okay, well, why did we go through? Oh, oh, wow, okay, oh wow, oh wow. Like he carried, he, he went the full coward's route. Like he went all the way through it. So it's kind of not necessarily, I wouldn't say satisfying, but it's sort of like it follows through with it. Like, yeah. He just couldn't take it anymore. He knew he wasn't going to be able to do the have the he wanted. Yeah, yeah. He would rather go that way. And than, did you see that coming, or was that a, a big shock? No, I mean, sort of. Once he's you know standing there, sort of pale chested against the window, you're like, oh well, yeah, that's that's the end of that. But like, um, I didn't see it coming up until that point. Yeah, um, the movie does a good job of that. I think he doesn't seem like that type, right? He's not like morose he, he, he's if anything the cheerleader of the group right well you're also hoping for some sort of catharsis between these two between boy and man between him and his father we're just sort of hoping that neil is going to like he's so passionate about the acting and his the play was so well received you think that that would bolster him into you know uh finally saying this is who i am this is who i want to be 
and you know you can't dictate my life or you you know i've i've done everything that you've asked and i've done it with flying colors you know like at no point it would be different that's the other thing that i really liked it it would be different if like his grades had suffered while he'd been doing this other stuff but he'd maintained all of his grades so like that's why it's so great for me that's why i think that the ending works so well because of that because it doesn't cop out it it goes to a hard place um and uh oh shit what were you just saying yeah and and it's not like it's not like that easy stuff was yeah he was slacking there but he was like there's no reason why his dad should say he can't do this as a side thing like his dad is just being a dick yeah and so I think part of what's satisfying for me anyway is just that moment where he finds him and it's like, yeah, you fucking deserve it. Right. And then, of course, they do that human thing. And the ending makes more sense because they they do that human thing where they place blame on. It's clearly not my fault. I didn't push my son, you know, to a place where he felt like death was you know, better than having a conversation with literally death was better than to try and have a conversation with this man. Like for, to push him to that far. No, it wasn't me. It was this teacher who pushed him to all of these different things. And the way that they described the charges to Ethan Hawke's character, uh, like the things that he's done, like in you're listening to this and it's like, this doesn't hold any sort of water. Like wait, these, uh, these charges are so trumped up. Yeah. Like, um, pardon the expression, that expression is <laughs> ruined forever. Um, <laughs> I mean, it does mean something different now. It does. It does. Um, like, you know, but these charges have been so like exaggerated and you're listening to him and you, you know, he's going to sign and, they're, but they're just children. They're still, they're just children. They don't, yeah. they're like, you know, they're, they still have not found their place. They don't have uh, that sort of, and they, you know, there's no point, you know, you can see it from their perspective, you know, like they already have it. It's not like not signing it is going to like no. Make it not true for the for the the headmaster or anything like that. So they just sort of sign it to get out of trouble because that's what you do when you're, you know, sixteen, seventeen. You know, you don't, you know, you try to get out of trouble because it, it's hard to think about that sort of thing. But when you're in that space, like I like I was talking about this with my wife actually, where like you're when you're in that sort of high school space and you you know sort of you get into those kind of situations where it's like big trouble. It feels like life or death. It feels, doesn't feel like something that you like might not survive till tomorrow. And it's so weird how highly dramatic that that can be. Yeah. Um, where, I, see that with my, I mean, you have kids, I see, you see with yeah. our children is that passion that idea that is like, they can't see past that. None of this is going to matter. Right. And that they just need to get through it and then it's fine. But it's interesting. It's like I see my son with that, like just in sports games he plays, if he loses a game, it's just like it's the end of the world for him. And the next day it doesn't matter. And he remembers that. It's like, what about that last time you lost or this or that? It's like, did it really affect you down the line? It's like, no, it's just, they just, there's, you know, that's, that is the beauty of youth too, is like (laughs) you feel so much about things that feel so important. Yeah, I can I can definitely remember like losing like, you know, uh, you know, certain games and stuff like that growing up as, you know, playing on the football team and stuff like that. And you're so mad that you literally like punch in a locker and like you're just that kind of heightened emotion and stuff like that. Games you don't remember now, like, you know, you can't put your finger on who did what, what the score was. But at that point, just losing that more, like that game felt literally like the end of the world. It felt apocalyptic. Yeah. I mean, if I could, like, I would pay any amount of money to be able to tap into some of the emotions I had as a teenager when I sit down to write. Right. Oh, my God. Yes. And, and I, I use music to try. Like, there's so many. Like, I have that soundtrack of my life and of certain times and certain mm-hmm. people where I, I uh, just try to make a playlist and it's just, and that sometimes helps me just kind of drift back and feel that. 
Um, I remember even just like the one time I drove back to the small town I'm from, I just had to pull over and I wrote like five pages of just like thoughts and feelings. It was just like, oh my God, I'm, I'm experiencing something I can't normally tap into. Yeah. And I think that's, I think that's one of the, uh, sort of the joys of writing is to get into that sort of deep reservoir of, um, like of thoughts and feelings and to be able to share that with people. I think that's, you know, that's definitely what I do it for. Like to see if you can like sort of, uh, sort of promote that response. Um, and like, like I said, the ending definitely works for me, uh, in that respect. So I, I think that's sort of, I think that's what I sort of judge a movie on. Like if the ending works for me and there's nothing worse to me than a bad ending. Like I can't, I'm like, why did I spend two and a half hours watching this? Like, why, why? Like, uh, the, I think, I don't know. Cause the ending to me is like a bad ending to me means like, I don't know. Like, you're supposed to leave on that, that ending and stuff like that. Like there's like setups and payoffs. You know what I mean? That old Shane Black, like adage of setups and payoffs and stuff like that. If you don't like, if you don't come out of the, that ending feeling like it was all worth it, what was the point? There are too many movies where I feel like, what were we doing for the last, like, and some people are like they you know, it's the journey. I don't feel like that with a movie. I feel like if like you tell a story, the story gets to the ending and that's why we were here. We wanted to know what was the ending of the story. Even if you don't like the ending, if the ending emotionally makes sense to where we started, then I'm cool with it. I'm fine with it. But, you know, not everybody feels the way that I do. Yeah. Well, did you, and you, you felt, I'm sorry, I just missed it. You felt or didn't feel that way with this? I did feel, did feel this yeah. way. I did. Like I, the, the standing on the desks, um, you know, the, the, the. Carpe diem. Yeah. The, um, I want to say the uh, sort of, uh, I can't think of the word, but uh, the, the standing on the desk, the, the, the sort of patented standing on the desk of, of the children at the end, even the kid who was like kind of dicking off during class, like, uh, like, you know, like this man, they're seeing this man get railroaded and sort of, he's sort of, um, a, a victim of everything that he was talking about. Like the, like the fact of like that, this conformed way of thinking and they really sort of stick that landing, especially because they start that with that, what are the four pillars of this, you know, yeah. like this school, like that sort of thing. And this man who dared to rip some pages out of a book and teach sort of like, you know, not like teach around the book instead of through the book, you know, that sort of thing. This man who dared to encourage, you know, children to think freely and for themselves um, is now being railroaded by this system. Um, on these, you know, exaggerated charges and that also have been, you know, forced upon us as well. Like they forced us to make us accomplices in this man's disgrace. And everything that he's taught them has then been, has, is now proven to be true. And them sort of having this moment at the end where they all realize this and they stand on their desks as a tribute to him. We understand and we feel for you and we will miss you. Like, I don't care if it's cliche. I don't care if I've seen it before. It's badass. It's well done. And I it works. Yeah. yeah it and, works. but it, you know, it also, it's, it's the choice they would not have made at the beginning of the movie. Right. None of them would have done that at the beginning of the movie. It feels earned. So like, I, I'm, I'm here for the movie uh, for the to the journey to the end, not uh, some of the some of the more cringy moments, and you know, uh, it does feel a little long in the tooth. Uh, there are certain scenes where, like, I really didn't need that. I really didn't need that. Like some of the scenes in the cave, I could have just done without. Um, the scene where um, they're in the where Charlie brings back those two girls to the cave. And I'm like, what is the point of this scene? 
I'm trying to figure out what the point of this scene is. I think it's to motivate uh, the one guy for the girl that he's in love with. I can Yeah, it's not. There, there's a, a couple things that are. You could probably trim a good half hour out of this movie and not lose much. Right. Right. This definitely could trim 15 minutes, if not a half an hour, off of this movie where you're just like, all right, let's have this run smoother. Um, and I think today that's the other thing. It sort of speaks of that, like of uh, the audience attention span, that this movie, like if you put this movie out today, like, nope, nope. Yeah, that's why I say it's a Sunday afternoon movie. It's one of those movies you watch when it's rainy and weather's crappy and it's like you're not doing anything else. And you don't mind just like waiting into something that kind of takes his time. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think of Williams? He's so young. He's so young and he's so a, beautiful. He's a um, baby. Uh, just extremely, extremely young. And so, sort of odd because you think about that, this movie coming out in 89, the sort of the end of like the, like the, Robin Williams as a heretic. You think of him like the the 80s comic, like um, those shows that he used to do with Billy Crystal and and Whoopi um, for HBO. Like those things, not only that, but Mork and Mindy and like all of these things, like Robin Williams is like this heretic of like a comedian, like that sort of thing. And then to end sort of that decade with this performance, like, wow. It's completely understated. Um, it's like uh, the first time you see Jim Carrey in uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. It's like one of those like this is understated. I love Jim Carrey in that movie because Kate Winslet is the heavy. Yeah, and she that the higher she gets, the lower he gets. Like he shrinks himself in that movie, and I love that. Robin Williams sort of does the exact same thing here, where he just like the more emotional that these boys get, the smaller he becomes, and. I really enjoy uh, his performance. Uh, that scene where Neil comes to him and is asking him basically for his permission to do this play. And he tells him that he needs to talk to his father. And then the next day he talks to him and he can tell that he's lying. Yeah. He just, he knows that he's lying and he just says it with his face. There's just unspoken thing between them where he's, he knows that he's lying and I love moments like that. I love like different like things like that where you have like these characters saying unspoken things between each other, but they can like they can just uh, articulate that with the facial expression. Um, the ultimate of which being the end of The Last of Us. Um, I don't know if you've ever played that game. For yeah. Play- oh, oh, the end of The Last of Us. Are you kidding the me? Ending of that it sort of reminds me of that scene where you have that that feeling where you're just like oh you just oh you are lying you are lying and like, just to have that sort of moment and stuff like that this just quiet moment especially from someone like robin williams just an underrated actor yeah so uh-huh. good well, especially here i mean this is the era he's doing he hasn't done goodwill yet uh he's i think he's done vietnam at this point Good morning, Vietnam. Yeah, but even yeah. that, I still feel like it's sort of a bombastic performance. Oh, it's still heightened up. Yeah, I mean, this is where I think Peter Weir said that he wanted 15% of Robin Williams. <laughs> uh, and I think that's about the right amount for this movie. Yeah. Uh, but I just thought that opening scene, it's so great. You know, it goes from him standing up above them, but then when he gets down low to them and explains, yeah. you know, it's important, that, you know, of course, science and engineering and all these things, that's how we live. But poetry is why we live and why. Right. And it's just like, yeah, it's like that's how you endear these kids and get them like, because otherwise, yeah, they're all sitting going, this is a bird course. Uh, we're taking it because we have to. Right. Uh, but to, to get them, like, like, that's the only way you can get people excited. I do kind of see that said, and here's the thing, I love his performance. I love his character. But you're also designed to do so. You know, this kind of character in movies is is the manic picture dream girl of this kind of movie. Yes, absolutely. Of yeah. like, you know, that that the teacher who's gonna change the lives and stuff like that, you know, that kind of stuff. And you only get sort of a sketch of who he is outside of the teaching persona. You know what I mean? He's like the picture on the desk and somebody comments on it, and there he's like, uh and then he's like, She's in London. And you're like, there's a story there. We're just not gonna get it. And they just 
let you fill your imagination with that story of why there's a beautiful woman who's in London that's sitting on his desk and why he's here and teaching. Yeah. Like, there's a whole ass story in there. And like, that's all you need. Right. We're just, we're just not going to get it. And there's just, yeah, he still has that picture. It's interesting. Yeah. Like, I would say it's the cliche is strong, but, and it's, and, and Williams did the movie specifically because he, he, he wanted to play the kind of teacher he always wanted to have. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm lucky. I did have two teachers like that in my, uh, in my experience uh, in high school, uh, particularly one who wasn't actually who I thought hated me, like legit thought he hated me. And he and I have become friends since. Um, and we keep in touch and we talk all the time, but I thought he hated me. Uh, but it was just for me, it's like, I wasn't like the kind of, you know, in, he was an English teacher and, and the kind of, you know, teaching he did and the kind of grading he did for what we were doing. He's just like, you're just not good at this. Like what the kind of writing you do and the kind of thinking you do is just not this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the way he would say that to me, I'm like, who the hell are you? You know, but right. at the time I didn't realize he was encouraging me in a way that was not necessary. And the other teacher, I had a drama teacher who uh, I still very much keep in touch with, who was very much like a second mother to me, especially when my mother passed away when I was in high school. And she was that teacher who would like go to the mat for students and, uh, you know, just would have lost her job for the kids if it came down to it. And there were times where people just didn't get her because she kind of like took in all the misfits. And even if you weren't like, she was, even if you weren't a drama student, like that room is a sanctuary for people to go whether or not you were actually interested in drama or you just needed a, a place to belong. I feel like, um, I feel like I'm more of a, like a Robin Williams thing. Like I, I think the closest I ever had was a drama teacher in our high school and he um, has since passed on, but he sort of um, very much like sort of, open me up to the idea of like a lifetime love of movies and cinema, like wherever you find it, because he had been like a, like a B movie actor um, and had done like Don Dohler films. Uh, if you know anything about like Baltimore underground film, like he'd done like, you know, films like, you know, played like the psycho biker and night beast, like that sort of thing. And like he, but he was very much like a, like a cinephile and, you know, would see like Banya on 42nd street, like that sort of thing. Like it was into that kind of stuff. And we were like, we would rehearse plays and I would sit with him in like, while we were rehearsing and talk with him about movies and things like that. And just he would sort of just encourage us to have this love for cinema and not necessarily like encouraged us to like uh to pursue a career yeah pursue a career in filmmaking or anything like that but but to sort of in sharing his love the same way that this man uh to that robin williams's character keating shares his love for poetry like that it feeds your soul like this thing can, if you allow it to feed your soul and it's not just, these are not just pretty words or, you know, words from some dead white guys or things like that. They are, they are words that you can live by and there you can find a way to do that no matter what you do. Um, and I sort of got that way about cinema and that sort of filled me up to the point where like, you know, the, you know, my senior year in high school, I was writing my first script. Um, so, and that just like, you know, started me down my whole path in, in uh, of being a filmmaker, but like, I'm not sure that I might've tried that without uh, that teacher, like in his sort of unbridled enthusiasm for film. Um, so for me, I'm, you know, I can, uh, 
I definitely enjoy sort of uh, Robin Williams is like, I think that's one of the best things about his performance is that he opens the kids up to this. But even I was sort of like, like enamored by this man's almost encyclopedic knowledge of poetry and um, these beautiful passages and phrases and things like that. And how that he was so dedicated to personalizing it for these kids. And somebody with that kind of, you know, passion about teaching and stuff like that, we just dream of like our kids or, you know, or of ourselves being able to expose to these kind of people. Um, so yeah, that's I, just it. Yeah. You, well, you want, let's like, you know, I, I have, you know, my kids are kind of odd ducks and, and I always find, especially in the public school system that, you know, every year we get worried because we're like, who are they going to get? Because if the teacher doesn't get them, they're in for a rough year. Right. You know, because uh, they are, you know, they're smart kids, they're good kids, but they, you know, they just, they need someone to get them. And that's every kid, right? Yeah. They need, they need a cheerleader and someone who who's in their corner and, you know, accepts them for who they are, has hopes for who they'll become, but loves them for who they are right now. Right. And that's, and that's what, where it's like all, you know, everyone else in this movie is just looking at these kids of going, this is who you're going to be. We're, we're training you for who you're going to become. Right. And you, know? if you don't fit inside like the mold that we're trying to impress upon you. I think that's what I saw a lot. Cause I worked in the school system for many years as like an instructional assistant. And for the latter part of my time in the school system, I was the in-school suspension person. And I would watch these, these good kids, a lot of whom were, uh, working jobs after school, they would come home and they were helping out at home. Like their income was helping to like feed people and like different things. And they were trying to, you know, deal with, you know, problems at home. And then they would come in and they've been up all night, like doing homework and different things like that. And then they would come in and some teacher, you know, whose ego was bruised because this kid was sleeping in in their class and not bothering to find out why, not yeah. bothering to ask why. And then they would send the kid to me with no work. So the kids lost the grade for the day. And then you send them to be more behind by not sending them with any work. It just shows that you don't care. And you didn't care in the first place. And then for me, it's like, you're in the wrong, you're in the wrong business. Like you, what, what are you doing? Where, like, I, if this is just a job to you, I feel like you should quit. Like, yeah, teachers. there are other things that you can do that are just punching a clock. Right. This is a job for people that care. It's like people that write movie reviews who clearly don't like movies. Right. They just want to shit on everything they watch and right. be, write the clever right. headline that gets yeah. that gets people to click on it. And that, to me, like that was the worst is to watch, you know, these kids would literally suffer where, you know, they get down there and they'd be like, Mr. H, like, I don't understand. Like, you know, and it's not like you did them any favors. You sent them down there with no work. You kicked them out of your class. You and you and the, the other thing they would, you know, like we said, teenagers are highly emotional. You started a confrontation by trying to embarrass this kid in front of their classmates, like because they were sleeping or whatever, like that sort of thing. So immediately you were in the wrong. Like you started off on the wrong foot. You forced this kid into a situation where they have to react to you in a negative way. Then you punish them for starting something instead of waiting, instead of just waiting around, like saying, okay, this person's sleeping in my class. Fine. I'll find out what happened at the end and figure out if there's something that I can do. What's, but their ego was so bruised by this child, you know, taking a nap in their class or something like that. Like they just like immediately reacted. And I guess that's human. You know what I mean? Like not everybody's perfect, but at the same time, if you're in that position as a educator, like you, you should be thinking in that way. You should be thinking, well, why am I not reaching this student? Is there something that I can do? And if there's a way for me to do that without like putting them in a situation where I'm going to force them to rebel against me naturally, like to take their natural position because I have confronted them on, you know, in front of, you know, their peers. Whoever, like, yeah. It's just laziness really is all it is. is all it comes down to with, with some people. And, you know, I find parents are like that. I, in my bad moments as a parent, I'm like that. And I have to stop myself. Uh, and just, I, 
kind of the phrase that I learned that I read, I think I read somewhere once was that, you know, be a detective. Um, and, you know, when kids are at their worst is when they need you the most. It's not the time to shut them away or push them away and say, go off, be on your own. It's like, that's when they need you the most. Right. Because they're the most vulnerable, they're the most in pain. But be a detective and find out why. Why are they acting this way? Are they just right. shitty? Probably not. Nobody is inherently just shitty, usually. Some people are, but usually not children. Mm-hmm. Usually children, right. something's going on. So it's like, if you're too lazy to do the work, of trying to figure out what's going on beneath all of the shit, then how do you expect them to care about what you're saying when you just start talking at them? Right. There's mm-hmm. got to be like, you know, you've got to find some way of, of really connecting to them. And that, again, that to me was probably one of the other things that I enjoyed about Robin Williams's performances. Like it's so believable that this man, that he's like continually, like he's also like showing them what interests him. Like he's interested in soccer and all these other different things and stuff like that. Like he's also, he's sort of like letting them in and he's personalizing it. He's personalizing the the teachings. And I think that's because ex- you, they do that montage of like the children going through from class to class and they get like these giant books on their desks, like these thick, heavy texts on their desks. Like when they come to see him. Yeah. Time. And they're just none of these teachers are in any way, shape or form trying to give them anything outside of the status quo. And this man, here comes this, this passionate man who is passionate about poetry without a hint of any sort of like thing of like whether or not he's homosexual or anything like that. Like there's nothing, there's no, nothing to sort of hint at that. This man is just passionate about the written word in uh rhyming couplets you know this man is like he's he's just down with the with the shenanigans and i felt like that to me especially as a performance was extremely intoxicating and that sort of feeds into the whole manic uh pixie like you know stereotype but at the same time like like it's it was interesting to watch especially from robin williams yeah Um, no it's great but it's like that's what i mean if, if, if we can pass anything along to the next generation, it's the idea of passion. Right. You know, when I see a kid that just doesn't care about anything, that's the saddest thing to me. Right. You know, and just has nothing to be excited about. It's just like, there's gotta be something, man. There's gotta be something that you love. That you, that you, that gets you up, like that, that pushes you forward, you know, that you're just into, um, you know, that it's gotta be, you gotta find some sort of passion to, to latch on to like, and whatever. that's the, and for me, that's the journey of life. Even with just fucking numbers. If you're really into numbers and that's your, that's your thing. And you want to be a hedge fund guy, right? You love numbers. Then that's cool. That's great. Do that. Right. But it's like, do something that just you love because life is too goddamn short. Increasingly short, uh, especially yeah. during uh, times such as these, I keep hearing that phrase in uncertain times such as these. It's like everywhere that just pops up. It's the beginning of commercials. It's in the supermarket and uncertain times such as these. Oh, that's the biggest thing in commercial. Isn't it, wasn't it crazy how fast all the commercials changed? Yeah. Like, you know, you got a global pandemic and things are shut down, but the marketing. Oh, uh, and Burger King's is like, come to our window. We, we're clean. It's like, what the fuck is What? <laughs> We understand that you're scared right now, but now right. is not a time to not get a burger at a drive-thru. Come get a Whopper. Yeah. Um, <laughs> drown your cereal. <laughs> drown your sorrows. <laughs> and chain, charbroil goodness. It's, uh, in uncertain times such as these, you need a, you need a break. You need yeah. to have it your way. We can't ask you to supersize anymore, <laughs> but you totally fucking should. Right. Just come in and eat your feelings. Uh, Burger King, we're clean. Um, just yeah, I don't know. It's, this show is sponsored by Burger King, but so that I'm <laughs> gonna lose that sponsorship, but I'm okay with that. Oh man, uh, well, you know, we tried, we tried to work it in as best we could. Uh, yeah. I think it, I think it'll work. I, I don't think it's gonna backfire. No, people are gonna try Whoppers now, they're, they're gonna try, they're gonna try it because, especially since you, you know, you're getting into a lot of plant based stuff, you can. You sort of turn it back and get the go. They got the impossible whopper. 
Yeah, they they will not cook it on a separate grill, but they got the Impossible Walker. They're like, this is not for plant based people. It's plant based. It's not fucking for you. It's for people who are eat meat to try. And I'm not, I'm cool. I totally get that. I because somebody we also had a conversation with somebody about that about the like they were talking about the meat on the Starship Enterprise from the food replicators. Like, is that? Like sort of a plant-based meat. It's got to be hundred percent. They're not getting cows up there, right? Exactly. They can't. Like, yeah, that's the future. That's where we're going. Right. It's all. It's like three D printed food. Exactly. Pretty much that. So it's got to be like a plant-based. That like in in the twenty fourth century, they have perfected plant-based meat enough so that no one complains. Um, Everybody just accepts it. You can just get yourself a plant-based. You know, steak, just call it up, like, and it'll just 3D print right there, uh, and you can get it. It just, yeah. Fine. No, it's interesting. Yeah. I mean, we're going on a, a, a huge tangent here, but it's like before we, we, we bring it back around, there was a really great um, podcast I listened to, the CEO of, it wasn't Beyond, I think it was Impossible Burger. And just, and they're talking about, you know, how they, like, you know, they are, they're not trying to go after people like me because I already, I already bought the, the pill right. swall- and swallowed it. You know, they are, they're going after more like, you know, the average person who is on the fence because they're like, they're the people that we got to convince. Right. You know, the, the, you know, the vegans and the plant-based people are already having our products as treats now and then, yeah, but it's like, we're our emissaries already, you know, we got to go after the new parishioners, the people that don't believe in it, don't believe yeah. it's possible for these things to taste as they taste. Uh, but their goal is to like, you know, just like in Star Trek, it's like their goal is to try to save the world that is slowly collapsing from animal agriculture. Anyway, end tangent. I could go yeah. into a whole political thing here. So uh, final thoughts on Dead Poet Society. Uh, you know what? It, it's a, like you said, it's about a, it's about a half an hour too long, um, but it features a spirited performance by Robin Williams, it features a very young Josh Charles pre six feet under, um, or no, it's not, it's, it's not six no. feet under. Um, oh man, Josh Charles is from a bunch of stuff. He was on, um, a Sorkin show. What was it? Sports West Night? Wing. No, Sports West Night and West Wing, wasn't he? Yeah, and he was in both. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, a pre-Sorkin, Josh Charles, and a pre, um, Everything. Delpy, e- uh, Ethan Hawke. Yeah. Pre-Julie um, Delpy. I like that. Um, so yeah, and I, I, I think the ending is earned and while I did have some trouble sort of clicking in, like, like almost up to like midway through the movie, by the end, I'm totally locked in and I'm sold. Um, so I, I dig it. Yeah. I think for me, it's almost got like a perfect first and third act and the second act works is fine <laughs> you know it could there. be there it's there it, it's, you, it's the parts are good you know what i mean it's just, it's it's a little clunky it's a little heavy on one side yeah lose yeah, some weight yeah it should she could it's still it's still a beautiful body you know what i mean it's still a beautiful body it's a good person on the inside and that's all that matters <laughs> got a beat and you can dance to it um and then yeah because there's like certain scenes like she comes to the school and like the after he reads the poem out loud to her in class she comes to the school and you're like would that really happen yeah that feels that feels a bit written yeah Yeah. but that probably not probably not at all but like you know what I'll, i'll give it a pass like there are worse things that could happen in this movie. Yeah. And, you know, they're sort of, we're living in somebody's nostalgia about young love um, and, you know, like sort of teenage angst. Um, there's a lot of that. There's definitely somebody's whimsical thing. Somebody's remembering things a lot better than they were. Um, but like uh, the emotions feel earned, especially at the end. And I feel like if nothing else, then I'm here for that. Yeah. yeah. 
And that, and that's the old writing adage too. It's like, all you got to do is like first 10 minutes, last five minutes. Right. Those things work. You got to go. Yeah. Your movie's fine. <laughs> Here's the question. Though. Here's the question. Without this movie in 89, do we get like Goodwill hunting? Because as good as this performance is, the, his performance in Goodwill hunting dwarfs this because it's so good. Like I, I cannot, I literally, like I, yeah. I have so many feelings about that, well, they, that performance well, that Robin Williams. Yeah, I mean Williams wasn't the first person uh, attached to the movie in this role. It was originally a vehicle for Dustin Hoffman to direct, and he was going to play the part as well. And then, I can definitely see Dustin Hoffman doing that part. Yeah, and then when he left the project, um, I think. For a brief time, Liam Neeson was attached to play what? that part. And, <laughs> right? right, right. Oh uh, man, even bef- even like pre-taken, like Rob Roy, like uh, you know, like uh, you know, Liam Neeson. No, no, no that would that would have made the movie boring. I'm sorry, Liam Neeson. I'm sorry, but that would have been like the boring version of this movie. Uh, <laughs> but then when Peter Weir came on board, he quickly replaced Liam Neeson with. Uh, Robin Williams, which is an inspired piece of casting. It's inspired, uh, yeah. It's like Michael Keaton and Batman kind of inspired casting. You know what I mean? Like, one of those yeah. Like, oh, okay. Ah, ah. I want to see that version. Yeah, that's it. that's not the typical thing. Where it's like now, I find like there's a lot of casting goes on. It's like, oh, this is the new person that's gonna play Joker. It's like, well, yeah, of course they just picked the, the weirdo. Uh, <laughs> right. Uh, and not that we haven't seen some great performances in that light, but it's just like, some of them you're just like, yeah, I guess that's the obvious way you can go. Every yeah. now and then it's nice to be surprised and go, oh, I like what you're, I like that. I, well, yeah, I, I remember I, like the the backlash when they cast Heath Ledger as the Joker. People were like, the guy from A Knight's Tale, what? Like, no. Right? And, and now then, he's the, the pinnacle. Up, and then, then you get it, like, you saw that and you're just like, whoa, whoa. Whoa. Here's the thing: Is there now in cinema in Oscar history a character a character that's won more Oscars? Hmm. Joker's won two. The character of Joker has now won two Oscars. Two Oscars. Yeah. A supporting and a lead. Huh. Huh. I have I to look that up. I know actors have, play, have won like multiple Emmys playing the same character, but I wonder if that's true for Oscars. Yeah, like, uh, like, uh, especially different actors playing the same character. Yeah, I think Kelsey Grammer won like a, a, a like a stupid number of times for playing Frasier. Yeah, but, but but what's more special and you more unique is that it's two different actors in two completely different movies. Different, yeah, and two completely different performances as this character. Two completely different interpretations of the character. Yeah, both winning uh, major major awards, which is. Uh, you know that says quite a bit, and 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 what's even more interesting, despite you know the industry's love of shitting on superhero movies, you know this is like our most prestigious award show, giving a, two major awards to a character that is meant to be like for bottom feeders, right? You know, and and uh, not not that's not my opinion. That's the opinion of others, but um, so I think there's something kind of special and and fun about that. Well, I still think they, uh, I think somebody owes uh, Downey an Oscar for uh, at least one of those Iron Man performances, pro- preferably the, the 2008 movie, because that man made me cry. Um, and he's so perfect as Tony, like he's pitch perfect as Tony Stark. Like, if you think about it, like that man, I mean, I mean, it speaks for itself. Like that literally, there's, it's literally the biggest franchise that ever existed came off of that man's performance. And because without that, I don't know that Iron Man necessarily works. Like it's okay. Like the, you know, the plotting is okay. And the, you know, the, the thing is like that, but it's just a superhero movie. Yeah. But, what, but what brings it home is like, you watch literally like Robert Downey Jr.'s character sort of come through this gauntlet and that see the stuff in the cave is gorgeous. Everything about it is brilliant. And like, that uh, that scene with Jensen at the end where like, he's like, I'm going to buy you some time. And you're like, man, like, like these two are working, like everything about that. And then to watch them like sort of changing, coming out of it. And then just him sort of 
because he spends the the rest of the movie at odds with everyone that he loves. I think that most people forget about that. It's just like at the like from the time he gets out of the cave, everybody is telling him that he needs to be this, that he needs to do this. And he can see now his path in front of him, but he's also struggling with who he was and who people expect him to be. And that performance is, he just carries that on his shoulders through this movie that could have been so mediocre. It just had the potential to be completely mediocre. And then that last line that he just comes through and he just nails it. And he's like, I am Iron Man. Could have just dropped it flat, whatever, and stuff like that. It's a throwaway line. But it just, it made an entire franchise. Like, somebody owes Downey an Oscar, and I'm I'm, I'm not going to let people forget it. I don't give a shit. You know, for me, the I, I think I I I agree hundred percent with everything you're saying. I will say I have troubles with like the Iron Man character in the back half. Like I think everything leading up to and including Civil War is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Then after that, it feels holier than thou. It feels right. like, especially when you get into Spider Man and you get into like the last two movies, it just feels like it's like now he's just a preacher and he knows better than everyone else and. And that it started to grate on me a little bit to the point where I'm like, please, like, just let Tony's story end soon because it feels like we've gotten there. We, he, he's fully transformed 130 percent at this point. Right. We just need to we need to move on from from him. But definitely, like the I, I you know, he he was there's who else could play Iron Man? It's like watching someone else no. in the Wolverine. Yeah, it's gonna be that's gonna be those are gonna be hard to choose. That's gonna be a hard suit to fill, especially after Logan, where you just where like Logan, another superhero movie that was criminally ignored. Um, but like, uh, I love that moment in Infinity War where like you know Tony faces off against Thanos and he says he goes Stark and he says you know me <laughs> like it's one of those things where it's like this like Thanos embodies everything that Tony's been talking about like at this point like he's there like he's he's in it and he's just like you know me it's like the monster that he's that he's been talking about knows his name and like that's such an important moment for that character um yeah anyway somebody owes Downey an Oscar and um, you know, he'll get one eventually as a lifetime achievement award, and I'll just be like, "Fuck you!" <laughs> <laughs> you'll know. You'll know. You will sit home, or you'll be there. Maybe you'll be there. You'll be in the crowd, and you'll be like, "That's for Iron Man." Yeah, fuck you guys. You guys owed him that in two thousand nine. Kiss my ass. No, no, that's bullshit. Lifetime achievement, my ass. Yeah. <laughs> you owed him in two thousand nine. <laughs> Ridiculous. Oh, we could go on about superheroes for days, you and yeah. I. Yeah, but yeah, I, I enjoyed the film. Um, really wish somebody would do like a like a viewers cut where they cut <laughs> cut like twenty minutes out of the movie and they just have it run a lot faster. Um, but I, I enjoyed seeing uh, not just the performance, but also uh, like it's nice to you know once you have something that's so embedded. Uh, this is the other thing. This movie is so embedded into the public consciousness. Um, like certain other things, like it's an archetype now. And so mm. it's nice to see like where that the, some of the stuff is coming from, like that stuff. So like now that you've seen the original, you know, every time somebody parries it from here on out, you'd be like, oh, okay, I can associate that with that instead of yeah. back to I, other parties. I get that Simpsons joke now. Right. Um, I understand that episode of Community. Um, yeah. That just, you know, that sort of thing. Community, I think, well, I don't know. That's a Dan Harmon thing, but like he's another person who has like encyclopedic knowledge of movies and stuff like that. That guy is a, is a madman. As a writer, I'd like, I wish that I could as, like aspire to that man's level of like, like Swiss timing in terms of comedy. Um, I mean, even you, like I, like I, I aspire to your level of comedy and stuff like that. Cause I, I've seen like, they're like your movie, uh, the go-getters there's, you know, there's no reason for that movie to work and <laughs> like with those characters. You know what I mean? Like they're yeah. horrible people and like you find yourself laughing at different points in that movie. And you're just like, I should be laughing at this. That's a horrible for me to be laughing. You know what I mean? Like this character is pissing on someone else. Like, you know, like that type of thing. You're like, 
this is awful, but it's hilarious. Yeah. Um, and just that kind of thing where I'm just like, man, I don't know how Jeremy pulled this movie off at all. Somebody gave him money for this and I can't figure it out how I got it. Well, no, we didn't get much. We, uh, <laughs> we, we got, we got, uh, we got enough, exactly enough, but we didn't get, there was a lot of people who said, uh, no. Is there anything else? We, we, love, you, we love your work, but why, 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 why are you doing this? What? what? You, you know what? Because I read that because I didn't write that script. But it's like I read that script and I was like, and I exactly all the things you're talking about. I'm like, this is an incredible challenge for me. Like, what a tone balance I have got to like right. find and play with. Because this movie, there's no reason this movie there is so. This movie could very easily not work. And it's like, if I can make right, because if you don't nail the tone, like it falls flat on his face. Like you have to nail that tone. Yeah, and that's sort but, of like. And we were shocked because we 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 said it. We're like we're making this film for three out of five, three out of ten people, and those as long as those people those people love it, then we're happy. Right. We got better reviews for that than I'd gotten for anything up to that point. Where we were just like, like people that normally shadow my movies were like, yeah, just kids out of the park. It's like wow, 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 wow. Not <laughs> anyway. Well, thank you for the thank you for the compliment. I will it means a lot coming from you. Um, well, thank and thank you for for taking time to do this. And it, it made me. No, I, I will say the one benefit of COVID because usually I just do this in my place in Toronto. It made me realize that it's like oh, I can reach out to filmmakers and and artists that I normally wouldn't have on the show because because uh, I'm doing them all through this way now. So why why just limit it to people that are also in Toronto? Right, right, right. Um, but yeah, that's again. I've I've wanted to do one of these and stuff like that. So I was glad that we had this chance to do it. I would love to do it again. Um, just uh, and it's always great, like us getting a chance to talk and stuff like that. I feel like we click and you know we get a chance to just like ramble on about things that we love and stuff like that. Get to proselytize for Robert Downey Jr.'s forgotten 2009 Oscar. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so it, uh, you know. Love, you know, of course, I love the podcast and um, definitely love it, getting a chance to talk about this stuff like that. I, I I still wonder, I wonder if this, like the, like the Robin Williams here, if we don't have this Robin Williams, because I wonder about that kind of stuff all the time. If you like, you miss something, you know, that sort of sliding doors-esque kind of thing. Like if you miss this performance, if Robin Williams turns this down and the movie is done by Liam Neeson instead, you know, the same way of like, uh, you know, if Dave Chappelle plays Bubba Gump, is like Forrest Gump still even a thing? You know what I mean? Like that right. sort of, like those sort yeah. of opportunities. Do we get? Do we get Goodwill Hunting? I don't know. All the coulda, woulda, shouldas. I don't know. That's a good yeah. question. Probably. Not. I don't know. Maybe. I no, don't I think don't think so. I just don't. So. I don't think so. Well, the same as I, I we I say I've said before on the podcast. It's like I think without. Um, the disaster that was 1941, we don't get kind of some awesome restraint that showed up in um, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Mm-hmm. Like, I felt like he just got that indulgentness out of him and then realized that he just needed to tell a clean, efficient story. Even though, like, Raiders is grand on scope and whatnot, there's a lot of restraint in the filmmaking. There's a lot of restraint in that movie. Yeah, but I think you get that because he, you know, he had a flop, uh, and he he punished himself. And he's like, no, I'm going to, he made rules for himself moving forward. So it's like, I think those, there's certain things that happen in, in people's careers that are, like, necessary stepping stones. Spielberg is sort of like the anti-Michael Bay in that respect, in that Michael Bay never learns that lesson. <laughs> <laughs> he only, if, oh, if, if anything else, he tries to go like more ostentatious as his films go on, where you, where you get to a point where you're watching, you know, like, uh, what is that movie, that new one with Ryan Reynolds, Six Underground or... or I yeah, think yeah, yeah. You're watching that movie, and I'm like, this guy hasn't learned anything. This, there's no restraint on this movie. This man gives zero fuck about the people. He does not read reviews, or he does, and he goes, he just laughs as he, like, wipes his ass with money. All the way down. I don't care. I've already <laughs> cashed the checks, assholes. This movie said you can't do anything about it. Fuck you. You can't hurt me. I lie on money. <laughs> oh, man. It's like, I'm Michael Bay, motherfuckers. You can't shut me down. 
they're giving me $150 million to make Netflix movies now. I'll just do whatever the fuck I want. Yeah. I'm going to decapitate people to the fucking cows go, I don't give a fuck. I'm Michael Bay. <sighs> uh, I think I've been made toys into a fucking franchise. <laughs> to a major franchise. Five movies. Five fucking movies. <laughs> based on toys. Kiss my ass. <laughs> uh, Bless him. Well, on that note, yeah, <laughs> we'll we'll do this again. We'll have to. All right, thanks, buddy. All right, thanks. Thanks for joining us for Dead Poet Society. Black Hole Films is a proud member of the That Shelf Podcast Network. You can listen to other episodes of our show and other That Shelf podcasts on ThatShelf.com. Please subscribe, leave comments, spread the word, do all the things that let others know you like the show and how they can check it out. You can find me on Twitter, at LonJeremy, and go to Facebook and join the group Black Hole Films. And until next time, go watch something you've never seen before. Thanks. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat.